We're trying something different today. I'm going to try and basically make this a quicker video without reducing content. I'm going to try to be a little less rambly. I'm going to try to reemphasize points a little less. I'm just going to go down the list of my existing notes and we'll see how this works. Let me know what you think. This is an experiment, which is why I need you guys' feedback. So let's get right into it. First of all, this movie was written by Ronald D. Moore and Bronen Braga again. Now, if you'll remember, back in Generations, they basically had the script dictated to them, and they were really upset about that, and the script was a mess, and they hated working on it. For First Contact, they were told, hey, guess what? You can go work on it own. And they're like, yay! And then someone came in and said, oh, by the way, it needs to be a time travel story. Naturally, that was Rick Berman. Because, of course, it was. Who else would actually do that? But that being said, I do feel like Brandon and uh, and Ronald D. Moore did a really good job of this script. Definitely uh, uh, props there. It's funny because this is Jonathan Frakes' first movie career. Now, I've talked about before about how I feel he is a genuinely good director. This movie is amazing, especially given the fact that this was his first movie directing ever. He'd only done a few episodes of TNG prior to this. Now, he basically shifted from actor to director, more or less, after this point in time. And it shows, and he's good. Some awesomely genuine talent there. But I love it because it was a complete mistake. They actually went to a lot of what they call A-list directors. We're talking at, like, the Spielberg level in order to direct this film. And all those directors said, nah, we don't want to direct Star Trek. And so Frakes ended up getting the job basically because he volunteered for it. I'd just like to say that I think that was incredible because, as I've said before, I genuinely think Frakes is a very talented director and he does some really good stuff. By the way, I'm kind of going down the list. What are, what are the things that make this movie so great? First Contact is almost universally loved, and even though there are a lot of flaws with it, and there are, I actually can't think of anyone off the top of my head. Feel free to, you know, be contradictory if you want to, or, or tell me the truth on this matter. I've never known anyone who has actually disliked this movie, thought it was a bad movie. Frakes, I believe, is one of the big reasons for that. The writing duo being allowed to mostly do their own thing, that's the second reason. The third reason is the Borg. Brandon Braga and Ronald D. Moore were adamant about putting the Borg on the Briggs screen when they were first coming up with movie ideas all the way back when TNG was still going, when the idea of a movie was basically being tossed around as like a, oh, well, it would be nice to do a movie thing. These two writers said all the way back then, we want the Borg on the big screen. And it's no surprise why. The Borg deserved to be on the big screen. When you think about villains or, or story arcs that should belong on the movie, not everything should belong in a movie. A lot of stories fit more in television format than in movie format, right? This this is, this is just uh, common sense. The Borg was one of the most commonly requested things for a big movie about uh, TNG. The other one, by the way, was the Romulans, for anybody who's curious. Which is funny, because we didn't actually get that either, did we? <clears throat> but at least we got our Borg movie. I'd also like to give props to Alice Krieg. Forgive me if I'm pronouncing her name wrong. She does... She, she just knocks it out of the park. I'll talk about her later. And, of course, finally... The real thing that makes this movie great, in my opinion, is Picard and the very human elements therein. This movie has weird mixes of Star Trek II, IV, and VI in it. It has the great nemesis of our main character, Picard versus the Borg, which I'll talk about extensively throughout the course of this video. It has a lot of humanization, a lot of character growth, a lot of characterization, not just for Picard, but for many of the other secondary characters as well. And it also has a tremendous fun element, just out of nowhere. There's a lot of scenes that can only be described as fun. There's some genuine jokes in here, but most of it's just, ha, you know, some lighthearted stuff. Most of that's down on the planet. Not all of it is, but that's kind of that Star Trek IV emphasis and feeling being brought into it. It was done partially for juxtaposition, but also to keep the overall tone of the movie 
from becoming too dark, which was something that the writers and director both, or all of the above, basically said they were very concerned about. Because this story, if you actually analyze it, is an extremely dark, brutal, horrifying story. And they needed those lighthearted moments to keep the movie from turning into a downright depressing, you know, dark, edgy piece. Because one of the biggest themes of this film... Well, okay, let me talk about this in, in this format. In every film previous, I've been identifying themes, plural... No matter how many times I try to reanalyze this film, I come up with only one theme. And it's, it, and it's prevalent throughout the entire work, and it is very well woven into it. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. It's just unusual to find only one theme. Feel free to disagree with me on this. The theme I have is, is what I like to call the triumph of the human spirit, a.k.a. the ability to, for idealism to win out in the end, to be in a horrible circumstance and to try to do better and to succeed at it. This is prevalent in every single aspect of this movie, in Picard's story, in Cochrane's story, in Lily's story, in Data's story, no matter how you look at it. I mean, the, the two biggest examples are Picard and Cochrane themselves. Cochrane, who arose from the ashes of World War III to usher in a new era of peace and prosperity, and Picard, who, tur who turned to face the most horrifying thing he could ever possibly face, his one greatest enemy, his true nemesis, and emerged victorious. And there's an overall note of idealism and optimism in this movie, which, again, is odd, given that it's a, you know, the Borg. Quick note, some people have asked, why is this called First Contact? First Contact was the last name they settled on. Originally, this film was called Star Trek Resurrection. In fact, that was, so, that, that was the film name for so long, they were already filming, already had the script done, already started doing editing effects, you know, and already had the sets built, and they were already filming before they finally decided to change it from Resurrection. Why? Well, because Alien Resurrection came out, and, oh, God, we can't compete with the Alien series. Alien Resurrection's going to be incredible. Quick, we need to change the name. <laughs> I know, I know, hindsight. But, um... <clears throat> So then they settled on, they, they, they shouldn't say they settled on, they, they bounced around dozens of different ideas. Star Trek Generations 2, Star Trek The Borg, uh, I, forget, I forgot the others. There were quite a few that were listed and mentioned. They finally settled on Star Trek First Contact because the incident of First Contact, again, is adamantly important to that overall theme which ties, over, ties throughout the entire course of the piece. But moving on. Paramount, originally the Borg were just the Borg. That may sound weird, but what I mean by that is there was no queen. Paramount insisted there be a face that, um, well, to put it bluntly, Paramount insisted that people were too dumb to simply comprehend the Borg because they were just zombies at that point. And there's nothing interesting about zombies. Nobody likes zombies. Come on. But in all seriousness, calling the Borg zombies is also stupid because they're not. They're the Borg. They're their own little thing. There's a reason they had the staying power they've had for so many years, and I'll talk about that many, many years from now. Hopefully not actually that long from now. When I finally get to my TNG reviews, uh, I will be talking about that extensively in, Q in the QHU episode. Suffice to say, they decided they needed a face for the Borg, so fine. Alice Krieg enters the piece to play the Borg Queen. A lot of people are divisive on the introduction of the Borg Queen. It's probably the single most debated topic I've heard about this movie. Like I said, I've never heard anyone say it's a bad movie, but I've heard a lot of people say they hate the introduction of the Queen. And I heard a lot of people say they love it. And a few people who don't give a damn. Um, I'm kind of of a mixed mind. I'll talk about that later. Uh, I want to add also that Braga and Moore really showed their chops in this, in this outing. Because both of them just gelled together. 
they had great ideas about how they really wanted to showcase what a moment it was to have first contact with extraterrestrial life, to really show how impacting that was on human history. And, and it had to be the Vulcans. They were adamant. It had to be the Vulcans. The Vulcans have always been the number two race of Star Trek. It has to be them. So they, they, they forced it into the script. And they were also adamant about the fact that Cochrane had to be a flawed man. They could not make him this great idealistic visionary. I mean, this is true from, from script one, from, from the, before they even sat down pen to paper. They insisted on these two points. First contact was with the Vulcans, and Cochrane was a flawed man. And they didn't even figure out his flaws early on. They wanted him to be, well, an example of that theme that I've already talked about three times already. I swear I'm going to do less repetition. I'm working on it. But the idea here is obvious, isn't it? Cochrane is a human, not a visionary, not an idealist, not some kind of great, you know, figure of history making. He's just a guy. But that's the point. That guy accomplished amazing things. Yes, he was flawed. Yes, he had problems. Yes, he was selfish. Yes, he had difficulties. And yet, despite all of those, despite his own flaws and the horrors that he experienced, he still arose from those ashes, Phoenix allegory, blah, 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 to, to really accomplish something amazing. Now, uh, a gentleman named Eves and a gentleman named Zimmerman, who I hope you at least know at least one of those names. Zimmerman is well known for doing most of the set design and graphics design for most of modern Trek, uh, all the way up to uh, the end of Enterprise. Zimmerman does some great stuff. Um, they even named a, a major character in the Voyager series after him. They, I just feel like really giving them props. The design specs and setup for the Sovereign are amazing. The, the Sovereign class ship, which is what the Enterprise D is, or excuse me, the Enterprise E, is, is amazing. It's, it looks much more sleek, much more like a battleship. It looks much more like the new era of Trek being personified in this ship, since the D was the galaxy class made in the previous era. You, you see where this comes in. And I really also enjoy the set design interiors. They really made the battle bridge, or the bridge, excuse me, look exactly like it should, in my opinion. Just, just wonderful props. I just wanted to give the men props. The men props, excuse me. And finally, Jerry Goldsmith came back to do the music. Now, some of you probably know that name. He's actually the name most associated with Star Trek when it comes to music, even though he hasn't done some of the most famous stuff in Star Trek. He's pretty well known for doing some of the main themes of Star Trek, and uh, like I said, being really well associated with it. I mention this because Goldsmith has a really weird career. He's done some really bad music in his time. It's not like John Williams, where you could look at anything he's touched, and it's just amazing. Jerry Goldsmith has a much more checkered career, but... The real shame of it is Goldsmith has never actually been allowed to score a movie that was truly amazing prior to this one. And Jerry Goldsmith finally gets to do a score for a really great film, and I feel like it shows. He really shows his chops, and in my opinion, this is actually his, one of his best soundtracks, if not his, or excuse me, one of his best scores ever. He really emphasizes the tone and feeling of, of the scenes with Worf, the scenes with Picard. He actually made a, a le motif, light motif, however the hell you're supposed to pronounce that, for Picard himself that's present throughout the thing. There's the deep bass doom sound for the Borg. He just does some great stuff with it. So there are two stories in this work. The first is obvious, the first contact, the, the thing for which the movie is named, although incidentally. The second is the other one, the one of Picard. The term resurrection, I feel, would have been, a, the, the, the subtitle, resurrection, would have worked much better with this film because both stories are about that. Cochrane, Ashes, Phoenix, I've already talked about that. Picard's resurrection, though, is, well, also pretty obvious when you think about it. His resurrection from the non-life he's been living ever since Best of Both Worlds, which I will talk about much more extensively later. 
First Contact still works in its own right. After all, Picard does actually have First Contact in this film. So does Data, actually, if you think about it. But I mention this because both stories uh, complement each other well, despite having basically nothing to do with each other. The only real connecting point is the Borg themselves. I mention this because it's fascinating that the, main, that the Borg are not actually the main story of this film, despite most people remembering this as the Borg movie. But that's appropriate, isn't it? The Borg themselves, based on the way they have always been designed and portrayed, except for later in Voyager, bleh, have always been the kind of thing that you can't really do a story focusing on them. Even Best of Both Worlds was not about the Borg. The Borg were the impetus, the background, the design for the Borg. If I can diverge for a moment, yeah, I know, I said I'd do this last, but bear with me. It's like Dragon Age Origins. The Darkspawn are not what Dragon Age Origins is about. The Darkspawn are the driving force behind that game. The Darkspawn are the backdrop behind that, behind which everything else can be shown so we can flesh out the characters and the design and the, the setting and all this wonderful lore and thematic stuff more. The Borg are best used when they're used in a similar fashion, when the story is not about the Borg, but they are the driving force behind the story, and then the story can unfold in front of the Borg, like in Best of Both Worlds, like in Scorpion, actually. Scorpion did the exact same thing. Scorpion was far more about Seven, Chakotay, and Janeway than it was the Borg. You follow? So, uh, I've, I've been mentioning the books of the TNG movies as I go throughout this. This is the only book I don't feel is superior to the movie, but it is still a good book, and I do still recommend you read it. It does change the characterizations of the Queen and Cochrane, both significantly. I'll be mentioning that as we go through it. Now, the pace of the intro is one of the bigger things I hear com uh, complained about that doesn't involve the Borg Queen. The first, what is it, ten minutes? Of the, of the film, it's, it takes very little time for the Borg ship to be destroyed and them to travel to the past. The original intro from all the ports was actually even shorter. There was an idea going around that they the writers, you know, Braga and, and Moore, were both pissed off that they had to include time travel in their story. They didn't want time travel in their story. They originally wanted to do something else entirely, an entirely characterization piece with the Borg as the backdrop. And they're like, okay, fine, time travel. And they did something good with it in their defense, but they didn't really want to. So after they were like, okay, okay, and then they're in the past, was like the idea. Well, uh, Frake, I, I get this from several interviews with Jonathan Frakes. He went on record or as saying that he talked to him as like, let's stretch this out a little bit more. Let's do something more with it. And they were like, okay, Frakes, you know, we'll, we'll stretch it out more. It's still short. So I have little notes with an R by them that I'm going to be pointing at you, pointing out to you as we go throughout this film until we get to the point where we talk about all of them. The Borg have shown up. Everyone's tense, but eager, but chomping at the but chomping at the bit in order to get out there. You know, they are ready to go fight the Borg. And Picard says, We're not going. The Sovereign class Enterprise E. May or may not be the flagship at this point in time, but it's definitely a damned good ship. And a brand new battleship is not being sent to the front lines against the Borg. Huh? Remember that one, okay? Remember that in the back of your mind. I'd, I'd just like to pick a note and say the Sovereign is a beautiful ship. It's it's the Sovereign class. I, I keep calling it that because, you know me, I tend to call ships by their class name. Um, it is a beautiful design. Zimmerman and, and Eves, again, did an amazing job of it. It's really gets across the idea of a battleship more than a cruiser, and it definitely feels like that new era of Trek, as do all the other ships. They actually designed it along the lines of 16 new ships for the big battle against the Borg and the battle uh, over Earth. Only, I think, like five of them were shown, some of which have never been seen since because they lost the data on it. <laughs> Fun story. 
Um, I like the nice touches they have. Now, they say outright they've been in space for a year. But the fact that they've been in space for a year means that this is over a year since Generations. Because there's no way in hell you're telling me they were building the Enterprise, you know, a new Sovereign class ship, and then immediately gave it to them within minutes of the end of Generations. You, you know what I mean by that? So there was some time between Generations and them getting a new ship. Then they get a new ship. Then they spend some time in space, a year at least. I mention this because the movie does a really good job of showing the passage of time. The different designs of the set is part of that. The different designs in the uniform. It's little, but it's there. Uh, you know, based on the DS9 model and whatnot. Um, the presentation of several of the characters. Jordy now has these brand new implants. Uh, Beverly has a different hairstyle and is has, has dyed it blonde, which I think actually looks amazing on her. But then again, I also think Gates McFadden, Gates McFadden is the second most attractive woman in the world. So whatever. I'm a little biased. But the point remaining... There's a lot of little touches that really show the fact that there has been a significant passage of time, and I like that. Um, bookends. Yes, there, there's a wonderful bookend. Okay, let me go and say this. I made a conscious effort not to point out all the references in this film, but there are literally hun in the hundred range of them. There's in the three-digit range of references to previous Star Trek works in this. It's everywhere, and the more you're paying attention, the more you're going to notice them. They're all basically Easter eggs, but there's a lot of them. But one of the most important ones, and this is why I felt like mentioning this one, is they're being sent to patrol the neutral zone. Why the neutral zone? Why the Romulans? It's designed as a bookend. It's designed to call back to when the Borg began, which was not in Q Who, if you'll remember, but it was in the episode The Neutral Zone, back in season one, which was half of a good episode, I might add. I'll talk about that when we get to TNG. Some year, I swear, guys, some year. Um... The, the book in there, you know, in that episode, they were sent be, sent to this horrible area because they thought the Romulans were doing something terrible, and then they ended up learning it was some other alien force, which eventually it was realized was the Borg. In this case, they know the Borg are coming, and they're being sent to the Romulans because, I mean, the Romulans might take advantage of this, right? It's just a nice little bookend. Um, here's a question for you. Picard has been told he can't go fight the Borg. Now, if you don't really understand the full depths... Of, of what I'm going to be talking about much later in this film. One of the questions I have been asked is, why is Picard so upset about this? He has, uh, I forget the name, a classical piece, operatic piece, playing so loud, it's vibrating his, his discs, right? And he, his face is in, in utter agony. Really well-directed shot, I might add. Why is that? Again, remember that in the back of your mind. Remember that pain that Picard is going through. Quick Quick thought. I love this film, but some of the things about it make me question. For example, why do they obey the order to not go fight the Borg? Now, I know that sounds weird, because on certain circumstances, you know, okay, it's orders, yes, but when the moment came, they had absolutely no hesitation about breaking and violating those orders. So that's not really a compelling argument. The second point is, this is the Borg. Now, if the orders were, go to this area because we might lose this fight and we need to have holdouts, that makes sense. That the order wasn't that. The order was, go to the neutral zone because the Romulans might try something. That is a clear sidelining. Why did they not just violate the orders right off the bat? I don't actually get that. Um, that being said, 
I do understand the idea of you know military discipline, and I do understand the idea of humanity. In other words, the Borg are coming as a thought, but then they open the comm channel and they listen to the ships being devastated and the people screaming in panic and shouting orders, and then they realize, they feel more directly, more personally, just how bad the situation is, and that gives them the motivation to go ahead and violate orders. So, shrug. In my opinion, the Borg voice that is done in this one, it's only said, I think they only have like one thing that the Borg say in this entire thing. All the rest is, is Alice Krieg as the Queen. But it's the best presentation of the Borg voice that I've ever heard. It's also the finalized version of the Borg hail, the one that will be used most, most of the time throughout Voyager for this, from this point onward. It was such an awesome sound note that I actually ripped a copy of it out of this complicated process to get it onto a CD, to get it into an MP3, to get it into, a, into my phone so I could actually use it as my ringtone. Some of my friends were really weirded out by that, and then I had to remove it from my ringtone because people were getting so freaked out by it. <clears throat> so, I felt like pointing something out. I actually went back and counted. If we're being completely generous, it takes 22 seconds for the Borg to break the Federation's front lines. I say generous because about 6 or 5 seconds in... There's actually someone in the background in the comm chatter who actually says they're, they're, they've penetrated the front line. By 22 seconds, it's pretty clear by the dialogue and what's being said that the Borg have officially pushed through the line and are now and the Federation are now playing keep up and trying to stop them as they go. I just mentioned that because it's another thing this movie does very well. This movie actually does a really good job of portraying the Borg as I've always envisioned them. And in my opinion, most of... Okay. I've talked about the Borg extensively. I even did a video just about the Borg. Most of my interpretation of the Borg comes from this movie, but I may say that word interpretation clearly because it is interpretation. We don't know the Borg still to this day. All we can do is interpret them, and Voyager kind of muddies it because bad writing, but the fact remains... The Borg are, by their, by their nature, something we don't fully understand. The only time we ever get a really good inside look into the Borg's mechanisms is in this movie. Now, I know, you could argue some things in Voyager, but... Uh, point being that the thing that this movie, I feel, pulls off best with the Borg, and this is that Darkspawn thing coming in again, is it really gets across just how much of a threat and what kinds, plural, of threat the Borg actually represents. The idea that a Borg cube could smash through a fleet that knows it's coming, that has been designed in the new militaristic era of Starfleet, where they've already combated the Borg in the past and actually have anti-Borg tactics and ships whose only purposes are to kill Borg, and the Borg still just moves right through them. That's powerful. So then we have Hawk, uh, Lieutenant Hawk, I believe, the helmsman. He's an odd choice, because obviously they couldn't get Wesley. And yet he is a red shirt. He actually does have a red uh, uniform, funny fact. Um, but he's the weirdest example of a red shirt I've ever seen because he has lines, characterization, a bit of dialogue, you know, a bit of a decent amount of screen time, and he dies well into the movie. Just I don't know, I just felt like commenting on that. So let's talk about the Borg battle. First of all, I enjoy the Borg battle. My biggest complaint, arguably my only complaint, well, I have two complaints about it, but my biggest complaint is that it is too short. As I already mentioned earlier, they fight the Borg, and it's this awesome, amazing, wide-scale battle, and they do some really good stuff with it, and then it's over. Now, let me talk about the way that it does that right. The battle of attrition idea. The Borg, 
I like the idea that the Borg are not actually whacked out invincible. Even though I feel the Borg are, you know, basically top of the food chain when it comes to all of fiction. The, you know, with, with, with some limitations, of course, because Warhammer is really at the top of the food chain. The idea here is that the Borg are so strong because of how they implement their power, not because of the fact that they're just Superman, right? And so I like the idea that this battle has been going on for so long, about three hours of constant fighting, if you, if you remember the, the general figures were given. It makes sense that after three hours of nonstop fighting, the Borg ship is taking damage. The Borg ship is being hurt. Now, the, Fe the Starfleet, the Federation fleet is, is trashed, and there's, there's only a fraction of their forces left. But they are damaging the cube. I like that because it shows that after significant enough attrition and firepower, the Borg's adapt adaptive ability would eventually wear down. They would eventually basically lack the literal power generation required in order to counteract all the firepower that's coming at them. So that's good. And another thing that's good is, like I said, the overall scope of it, the presentation of the new Federation warships, the, the directorial style, the music. It's all good stuff, right? Let's talk about the bad. I feel like the Borg are a perfect example of one of those problems with writing a race like this. And uh, that is the fact that most writers flip-flop between two switches. They're either invincible or they're defeated. And there's nothing in between. Now, I, I know I just mentioned that attrition thing, but they defeat the Borg with basically a glass jaw attack, for all intents and purposes. They just hit them where they're vulnerable, and then the cube goes... Very quickly, I might have. Now, I get it. I get why they raced through that. I just think we should go for something a little more in-betweeny. Maybe that's me. Oh, I've been recording all day. Um, the other bad thing about it is uh, the Borg ship is destroyed, and then the sphere takes out, and then you start thinking about the logic of the Borg's plans. Plural, by the way. There are two. The original plan seems obvious. Cube win is basically the first plan. Cube starts to be destroyed. Okay, so they launch a sphere. Then they do the time travel thing. Well, the time travel thing is obviously a backup plan, no matter how you look at it. Now, I know, the time travel is forced in by the script, so it's possible they didn't actually think of a real reason why the time travel functioned. But if you look at it logically from an in-character perspective, the only possible usage of time travel in this situation is as a backup plan. Because otherwise, the cube could have just gone into time travel, oh, I don't know, anywhere. At any other point in time, at any other point in space, and then leisurely went across in the 23rd century towards Earth, and then won. But they don't. Well, there's some problems with time travel as well. I'll get to that in a minute. Um, I do like a, a couple other things about this battle I just feel like pointing out. First of all, it was actually insisted by the writers of DS9 that they write lines in to show that the Defiant was, was fixed. This really speaks to the quality and level of of continuity that the DS9 writers had at this time because they actually were willing to go on and write the show as if the Defiant was destroyed in this battle and just write around that fact from now on, if they had to. But instead, what, they, what uh, Brandon Braga and Ronald Lee Moore said was they actually threw in a line whose only purpose was to showcase that the Defiant was actually salvageable. In fact, the line is specifically adrift but salvageable. Another little reference I just feel like pointing out because... I, almost everybody misses it. Uh, William Riker calls the Defiant a tough little ship. It's a nice little nod because Thomas Riker also calls it a tough little ship. But moving on. So there's a beautiful shot of the Borgified Earth, which is wonderfully dreadful and horrifying. Excellent job there. And then we have the problem with time travel and writing. Now, I actually touched on this back in Generations. And there's no real getting around this. 
I'm going to try and be as brief as I can here, okay? The moment you introduce time travel into your writing, you have to limit it. Because otherwise the question is always going to be, well, why don't you just use it better than you're currently using it? Why don't you just go back more? Why don't you just do it again? Why don't you? Why, why is there any tension or problems? The moment you introduce time travel, a lot of problems get solved immediately. So you have to, you as a writer therefore have that many more problems to to reintroduce tension and difficulty and drama into your work, right? Now, lots of works and lots of writers have gone to interesting lengths in order to present limited time travel. In this case, there are no limits whatsoever which is why it's kind of dumb. And this is, this is indicative of the fact that the time travel was really just tossed in. And, and again, that whole resentment thing really comes through. Because let's think about this for a moment. The, the Borg sphere just time travels. It just does it. No effort, no incident, just and they're there. Then the Enterprise... Now, that I could at least buy. Except for the fact that if the Borg have the technology to time travel, why don't they do it all the time? No, no pun intended. Why don't they just, when they ever encounter a race, they just go back and, uh, you know, if they ever lose any battle, why don't they just go back and then now they have the data from the battle and then win? Are, they're already adapted, right? It would be more, far less wasteful to do so, far more efficient, which has always been one of those things I feel like is, is a Borg ideal. So why? Eh. But the thing that really gets me is the fact that the Enterprise E then time travels on their own, no Borg, no Borg ship. You could argue that the Borg pieces on the Enterprise E help, but they actually throw in a line specifically says that Geordi has basically just matched the chroniton particles that the Borg ship was tossing out, and then they can time travel. Congrats. The Enterprise-E literally has a time travel to drive. It has a flux capacitor now. You see the problem when you introduce something like that. Now, I could, I could see that they could be like, okay, the Federation is going to dismantle this device because time travel shouldn't be used, blah, blah, blah. And we do actually know that the Federation and Starfleet do eventually have a time travel fleet whose only job is to travel through time and, and keep keep track of all this time travel crap. It has been argued that one of the reasons that entire force was introduced into the franchise, in Voyager specifically, was as a way to explain why it is that all these incidents of time travel don't make sense, really, when you think about it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop talking about it. Let's, let's go ahead and talk about how James Cromwell is awesome. Um, James Cromwell is awesome. He plays Zephram Cochran. He killed the role. Tom Hanks was actually originally going to play the role. Uh, Tom Hanks himself is actually quite a bit of a Star Trek fan and was really eager about the idea, but he was filming something else. I forget what. And uh, so instead they got Cromwell, and Cromwell just blew them away. I agree, he does a wonderful job of the role. And I kind of like the book presentation of the character better. But that's nothing against Cromwell or the script. I just felt like sharing that. I'll talk about that again more in a minute. So, the Borg Sphere does almost no damage to the sh to the little shanty town in Montana, and their shots are very inaccurate. Is that deliberate on the Borg's part? Well, debatable. I could actually really analyze this one point because it has to do with one of the main plot points and, and probably the only thing that's actually a twist in this entire story. But suffice it to say that I think this is more an example of bad writing, and I hate to say that, than actual deliberate good writing for subtlety purpose. Now, you could argue with me on this, and I'll, and I'll allow that, but the only possible reason for the Borg to be doing what they're doing is specifically to ensure that the Enterprise shows up, destroys the sphere, and therefore they can take over the Enterprise and do things that will happen in the thing. Now, that is a valid point. 
make up your own mind on that one. Um, I do like the point that the shields and long-range sensors are offline. I mentioned this especially because my sister had a wonderful reaction. I mentioned last year she and I went through all these films together for the first time for her. And there's, there's it's just an offhand line. It's delivered perfectly. It's the kind of thing you're not even supposed to notice. A long-range shield, shields and long-range sensors are offline. And she just freaks out. She's like, get the shields up. Get the shields up. Get the shields up. Because you can beam to another ship without the shields up. And this is another thing this movie does very well. The Borg are obviously a huge, terrifying, dreadful threat. And yet the hidden, quieter threat throughout this movie is the fact that even one drone is just as much of a threat as the whole collective. Because one drone, used carefully and cautiously, will turn into another collective. So, I've always loved the idea that only a small handful of drones beamed over the Enterprise. Like, three. Plus her body. That's it. And those three caused all the things that happened to happen. Because that's all they need. That's one of the reasons I like the Borg and their execution, especially in this movie. It's not just the fact that they have a giant cube and overwhelming power that makes them dangerous. It is how they implement their power that makes them so dangerous. They are the, nat they are the classic uh, undead army concept, which is one of the reasons why I, I imagine they were likened to zombies. They will grow off of your losses, and they will never stop growing unless you find a way to stop them in a more permanent fashion. Because unless you get rid of every drone, every piece of Borg technology and equipment, you lose. Now, I also really like the presentation of Data. I think that the best presentation of Data in the four movies in which Data has emotions is this one. Um... I honestly owe that mostly to Jonathan Frakes. I mentioned back in Generations how Spiner said he didn't have a handle on how to portray his character. Frakes just nailed it down with him, said, I want you to portray someone, you know, you've had a few years to work with your motion ship. You've been, you have the ability to turn it off and on now, you know, because that's been established. I want you to portray someone who is still basically data, but with occasional hints of emotion in him. And Spiner was like, got it. And he nails the part. You know, he really is just data, and most for the most of the work, you could basically say he's just an android, and then he'll say like one line, which reminds you that he has emotions at this point in time. He's just gotten more accustomed to them, like the thing where he see, feels anxiety when he enters the Borg corridor. You know, that's a great scene. That's a great scene that really helps emphasize how data has evolved through the use of his emotion ship, exactly as was intended. Um. I also like the fact that strength, uh, Data is portrayed as actually strong and durable in this movie. Um, he's actually shot at point-blank range with a machine gun and is fine. I just point that out because that's not been true throughout TNG. In fact, if you watch TNG all the way through, you'll notice that Data basically starts off pretty weak, all things considered, and gets stronger as time goes on. <sighs> so, another little anecdote... Uh, which most people are probably aware of. That's actually a real Titan hollowed out, obviously. Titan missile that the Phoenix is made of. Uh, a real nuclear missile, in other words. Obviously, you know, defunct. Um, but after all the options they had uh, and all the possibilities to, to remake this thing, because they always decided in the script that it was an old nuclear missile, it really turned out to be the cheapest and most authentic presentation to go ahead and just actually ask, you know, can we use one of your old silos? And they were allowed to, and, it, and I think it works really well, personally. Um, I love the quiet horror at Picard's realization when he's down on the planet and he hears the Borg whispers 
I love that scene because it's probably one of the most horrifying things that most people could think of, and it is definitely the most horrifying thing that Picard could ever think of. Remember, at this point in time, the Borg are probably not even on his mind. He's in business mode. Take care of the ship. Fix Cochrane. Fix the timeline. You know, professionalism. Chunka, 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 chunka. And then he hears those whispers. And that just brings all the fear and all the dread and all the horror and all the emotions just bubbling right back to the surface. And you see it in Stuart's presentation. Stuart just kills in this, this, this movie. Um, so... One of the other uh, notes that is actually established from TNG, there's, like I said, there's a lot of nods, is the fact that Data has the ability to single-handedly lock out controls on the ship. He actually has done this before, if you remember back in TNG. He did this at least in Brothers. I don't remember if he did it else, other, elsewise. But I like the fact that there's that little nod to what happened back then, and the fact that Data is the only one who can actually do it. It's funny, because if Data hadn't been on the ship, then the Borg would have won very quickly, wouldn't they have? But there's something to be said about that, and it's interesting to note that uh, the Borg don't actually start doing their thing until Data's on the ship. Just keep that in the back of your mind. I love the fact that they had uh, Robert Picardo as a cameo, as the EMH. Uh, that actually is the Voyager sickbay, if I'm not mistaken, with a few touch-ups, uh, the set, that is. And I also love the quiet, subtle note of it, because... Picardo's always been great at adding more flavor to his character than really there should be, if you think about it. His visual presentation, his body language acting is great, as he portrays someone who is trying to sound blasé and casual and yet is actually intimidated. A hologram being genuinely intimidated by the Borg. That's something that always kind of stuck with me. So, then we go to poor Deanna, who is currently getting drunk for... I don't even know how many, how long it's been since she's actually been drunk off of uh, tequila and whiskey, of all things. Ugh. But it's a great scene. Again, it's that whole fun factor that I mentioned earlier that is just present throughout this film in weird ways. Um, then we have something that I've been asked about a long time, and I want to talk about this real quick. I've been asked, why is it that more people don't use melee weapons against the Borg? Now, the reason this is asked is because the Borg have never, and I mean never, shown the ability to actually adapt to melee weapons. Now, in actual fact, on screen, melee weapons are always ridiculously effective against the Borg, right? Well, no. There is one instance where they're not, and I like this. Worf brings his phaser rifle out and butts a Borg over the head with it and basically knocks it out. That's Worf, a Klingon who's in really good shape, and who is a warrior who and security officer and all that fun stuff, right? Later on, a human tries to do the same thing, and it accomplishes nothing. This is the first reason why I think you don't do melee combat against the Borg, because most Borg would probably win at melee combat. They are stronger than we are, for the most part. Second reason. Being in melee combat with Borg involves being in melee range with a Borg. Now, I want you to imagine you're playing D&D. Bear with me. And you have to be within five feet of a Borg to hit it melee-wise. Okay. And the Borg in this, you know, in this monster setup have a special ability where every time they successfully connect an attack with you, they just randomly roll the dice to see if they infect you, if they assimilate you. Or they can do a specific assimilation attack, which only requires a light grapple check with their strength, which is much stronger than yours. You could probably see why most people don't want to be in melee range of the Borg. Whether it's effective or not... It's not really that viable, especially not long-term. So that's my answer to that question. Picard, 
then is forced. Well, eh. Picard then sees one of his own crewmen being assimilated right in front of his eyes. The nanomachines taking over his, his, his face as he's watching. And the crewman literally pitifully pleads for help. Picard hesitates only a second and then shoots him dead. That's point three. Keep that in the back of your mind. So Alice Krieg. I've often said that one of the reasons I enjoy the presentation of the Borg Queen is because of her. Her presentation is amazing. She is part spider, you know, part Black Widow trying to ensnare people in her web kind of a thing, and part succubus. And yet her presentation at no point goes over into the squick territory, at least not for me. And it also makes a lot of sense when you consider other things. For example, well, you know what? I'll, uh, I'll get to that in a minute. Let's, let's just go ahead and keep going in the order of my notes here. So I like the incidental nature of First Contact, and I like the concept of idealism realized. One of the things I've always loved about the portrayal of Zephram Cochran is he is a flawed man, yes, but he still had idealism underneath all of that. He still had hopes and dreams and things he was aspiring to. It's just that, you know, he, they were buried in muck and cynicism and pain and bitterness. I like the fact that by complete accident, his big dream ended up succeeding, and that allowed all that muck to wash away, revealing the person underneath, the idealistic individual, right? This analogy is basically perfect for exactly what happens to humanity and Earth in Star Trek, in the actual continuity. Earth was a mess after World War III, and then they had contact with the Vulcans. They realized they weren't alone. And that idealism was allowed to find expression. And Earth underwent a phenomenal revolution into what is effectively their golden age. So I like that, that presentation of that. This is also the first, and to my knowledge, only time the words Star Trek are actually uttered in such terminology in the, in the thing where Cochran says, you're on some kind of Star Trek. Just felt like pointing that out. So the Borg were winning at every single turn, and they stop at Deck 11 because they have access to the deflector control. Now, we know that. But why stop there? Now, you could argue the efficiency thing, but that doesn't make any sense either. It is far more efficient to simply assimilate the ship and then win. Why, why stop there? Keep that in the back of your mind, too. I know we're keeping, we're keeping stuff in the back of our mind about Picard and stuff in the back of our mind about the Borg. Just bear with me on this one. I like the presentation of Lily. Uh, for those of you who don't know, the original story was actually that there was going to be a romance between her and uh, Picard, as it happens. And that underwent some redrafts until finally it was dropped. I think the dropping of it was a good idea. Especially because when you think about it, Lily's gender effectively is made irrelevant. Which is, I think, part of why I like her character. <laughs> no pun intended, by the way. In other words, at no point, if you replaced Lily with a male, you wouldn't have to change any of their lines at all. It would still be Lily, or Lilu, or Lylon, or whatever you would want to call him. It would still be the same character. That's generally, in my opinion, how you tend to write that kind of character. You, you Character first, gender second, right? I've talked about this a billion times. Now, that being said, I do also like Lily's overall presentation of her character. She is obviously very smart, and she has her own idealism and her own basic humanity. She's very cynical, very bitter, very paranoid. And all of that, sh uh, we learn so much about how crap and terrible and awful the world after World War III was in how suspicious and, and on edge and nightmarishly, you know, just paranoiacally terrified that she is in those first parts. Her presentation tells us so much about how bad Earth really was, in other words. And I love how Picard's simple human trust 
reaching out to her, more or less literally, telling her his, his name, explaining that, you know, this, we're on the ship, blah, blah, blah. That's what actually reaches out to her. That kind of open palm uh, approach is the only thing that reached out to her, which also bespoke of the fact that she had more humanity underneath her, just like Cochrane did. Again, that, that whole theme coming back in. So then the queen actually shows herself. And I'd just like to say they did an amazing job with the graphics on the queen. When she descends into her body, that is a surprisingly well-done shot. You can kind of see the, the blue screen around her. Krieg actually was like this, with an actual prosthetic here and like a blue screen drape on her. It's, it's really funny to look at if you've seen it. But uh, they did an amazing job with it. So I mentioned how well done the queen's presentation was because the queen has expressed more interest in data than in anything else at this point in time. Now, I like how her... She, she approaches him with exactly what he wants. No, not flesh. Information. Data is naturally inquisitive. Always has been. And if you remember, we know very little about the Borg. Really. Even now. But at the point in which this movie came out, the Borg were practically unknown even still. Most of what we knew was from, from battle situations against them and what little information Picard was able to glean. And that's it. We still knew very little, you know, in character and out, about how the Borg inner mechanism functions. So the idea of meeting a queen, the way he says greetings, really shows the fact that to Data, he understands this is a monumental event. This is effectively first contact with the Borg meeting the queen for the first time. And the idea of trying to find some kind of common ground in discussion is something that Data does for quite some time until he realizes that there is no possibility to do so with her. So the first thing the queen tempts Data with is knowledge, information. I really like that because it's indicative of how her seduction of him eventually goes, which I'll talk about in more detail soon. She also has a line I love. I bring order to chaos. Now, the obvious logical thing that everyone has always assumed that means is that she is rep representing herself as the Borg, and the Borg bring order to chaos. I've always actually had a different interpretation of that, though. I think she means she brings order to the collective. My interpretation of the Queen has always been that she is a distinct individual who nevertheless serves the collective. She serves at the behest of the collective. She can be replaced with a new model, with a new mentality, at will, I might add. But she does have her own drives and motives and thought processes separate from the collective. Now, she may try to accomplish her own things, you know, separate from the collective. She'll always try to accomplish those things in line with what the collective wants, in line of the better, greater good for the collective. But I, I like that line, I bring order to chaos. The idea that the collective needs a focused individual for its for its to function under certain ways and and uh, and side things. Now in the book, I feel like pointing this. Out. In the book, uh, that's not true at all. In the book, she is the Borg in the sense that she is the Overmind to use the Zerg uh, to, uh, uh, mindset or, or concept or whatever. She is the conqueror. She created the Borg. She is portrayed as this horrifying, nightmarish, spider-like thing who, whose desire is to conquer, consume, and devour everything. An unsatiable hunger. It's a horrifying look at the queen, and actually a really good interpretation of her, in my opinion. But, uh, you, you know, you, you may feel free to like that or dislike that at your will, as usual. 
So the, the second thing the queen tempts data with is sensation. This is something I love because fiction only touches on this occasionally. One of my favorite books, Divergence. Uh, I said that wrong. Let me diverge for a second because I don't like the book Divergence. Um, <laughs> let me diverge for a second into one of my favorite uh, little com web comics, actually. It's not even a book. Uh, Order of the Stick. One of the plot points of that thing is that this great mage, uh, Zykon, is a very powerful sorcerer, actually. And he is... He enjoys the simple things in life. The simple things in life literally are what make life life for him rather than mere existence, right? And one of those that is mentioned is the taste of coffee. Well, at a certain point in time, he is turned into a lich in order to survive, break out, and do all sorts of horrible things, right? So he goes back, and he's all in a good mood, and he goes to taste his coffee, and he can't taste the coffee. Sensation has been removed from him. He goes ballistic. He loses it. Nearly kills everyone else involved on the spot out of pure, unadulterated rage. Sensation has been removed from him. Now I want you to imagine the reverse. Imagine you have never actually felt. There was actually a bit of, of hinting at this earlier in the movie. Remember when Picard puts his hand on the, on the thing and he's like, ah, oh, this makes it so much more real to me. Data does the same and it means nothing. But if you think about it, Data is not actually sensing it in the same way we are. I know you could argue semantics. Bear with me. The idea is what data is feeling is not feeling, but rather sensor data. What we are doing is much more imprecise, much more organic, much more, much more of that nebulous thing we call feeling, sensation. So the queen grafts skin onto him and blows on it. Data has never felt in his life. All he's had is those sensors. So for the first time in his life, he feels what it's like to have sensation. I'm going to keep using that word, but bear with me. So it makes natural that he would be so tempted by that concept. Then Picard preaches to Lily for a moment about how the future is so much better because they got rid of money. Now, don't mistake me. Uh, I think that money uh, is something to be tolerated rather than enjoyed and is something that I kind of wish were, there were other circumstances to deal with the concept of a limited... Uh, limited resource market, but the fact, fact remains, I hate getting preached to by Star Trek every time they come up with the, we try to better ourselves, and blah, 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 blah. Although I like what they do with that in DS9. It's also worth noting, money does exist in the future. This is actually established in the original series. Never mind the fact that they interact with other species who also have currency, but whatever. So, Picard then has to take them through a corridor of Borg. Pay attention to Picard's expression during that scene. Just watch what's going on in his expression. This will tie up even after I talk about these things, but put that on the remember list. We're up to four points now. Put that on the remember list for Picard. And then we're up to what I believe is actually, yes, this is the final remember list. Point five here. The holodeck scene. This is my favorite scene in the entire movie, and the reason why is it's because the most subtle one in the whole movie. This is all of Picard's story in one simple scene. Picard gets the Tommy gun. And, I'm sorry, I have to point out the irony that the most subtle scene in this movie is when Picard is firing a Tommy gun at two advancing Borg. Anyways. 
For those who, just to bring it up for the nitpickers, I've always believed that the reason the Borg don't adapt to the incoming bullets is they didn't have time. They, you know, Borg need information to adapt. There were two drones, and they they were cut down within a matter of seconds. So I think they can adapt to bullets. Just my opinion on the matter. Moving on. I mean, they can adapt to torpedoes, for God's sakes. So... The reason this is the most subtle scene is watch Picard very carefully, very closely. His expression is that of a soldier, someone who is fighting an enemy in a war, someone who is defeating something that is, is an obstacle to him. But when the Borg get closer, his expression cracks. Rage tilts his features until it becomes outright hatred, until he screams, until he charges them with the physical tigam, ready to beat them even after having already killed them. Why? Because they got closer. And then he recognized them. Keep that in the back of your mind. Point five there. So, I love Barkley. Barkley is probably my favorite guest star in the history of Star Trek. Uh, his inclusion adds some great warmth and enthusiasm to the scene and really emphasizes that hero worship without going too far. It's hard to be genuinely like, oh, God, you're great, without being a character about it. But but uh, Dwight Schultz really nails it with someone who's just genuinely happy to see someone. I like that. I'm with it. Really well done. So Cochran. I already talked about Cochran's, you know, rise from hell and the fact that he's been through horrible, horrible things. Um Cochran is another interesting aspect of humanity in the fact that, and this is true even in real life, we tend to look at things historically and raise people up or down based on that history. Exaggeration is really what that boils down to. The further we get away from the facts and the events, the more we tend to exaggerate them. So Cochran, by the time of Star Trek, you know, the next generation, is a, a historic, wonderful figure of incredible importance and awesomeness. Not the bedraggled drunk who's in front of them, who's crude and rude and a bit of a womanizer, among other flaws. I mention this, though, because I like it. Again, it's that flawed perspective thing, because keep in mind, and I hate to repeat myself on this, despite those flaws, despite being a womanizer, despite being a drunk, despite being a normal, down-to-earth, unpleasant, rude human being, he still did it. That's usually how history is actually made, remember. Someone actually does it. And Cochran did. He succeeded beautifully. He helped Star Trek happen. In the same way Roddenberry did. That I don't think was done intentionally, but it's impossible not to draw the connections there. Roddenberry was a very flawed individual. A bit of a jackass, if I'm being blunt. And kind of a miser with regards to monetary rights and screwing over certain people and all that fun stuff. I mean, the infamous thing with the, the person who wrote the song, the music for Star Trek that Roddenberry wrote lyrics for just so he could claim money rights for it. And yet, despite those flaws, Roddenberry gave us Star Trek, the show, the franchise. We got something great out of that. Now, it's not just him, but it's not just Cochran either, is it? They hit the first domino, and we took it and ran with it. I love the subtlety of that connection. Now, Cochran flees. Now, why is that? Well, he's a drunkard, we know that, so maybe he's just... Blah. The book goes out of its way to add a sub-story to Cochran. Basically, he had a mental illness. Uh, they never list which one exactly, but it's a form of mania. And 
uh, very, very bipolar mood swing kind of a thing. And he, I actually feel like this adds so much to his character personally, and also kind of ties in in, a, in an interesting way, um, because he, before the war, all you needed was an implant. Implant, swip shit out every six months, you're fine. After the war, no more implants, no more hospitals, no more people who can produce those things anymore. So he just kind of had to live with it. Now, he was still a brilliant man, an incredible genius scientist. But the only med medicine he ever found that actually worked for that was alcohol. And I'm sure you could think of what kind of medicine that would actually be. That leads me then to what ends up happening here. He literally has a psychotic breakdown. He flips out. He can't take it anymore. He doesn't want to be a statue. He doesn't want to be vilified, or not vilified, uh, venerated. He doesn't want to be, you know, put up on a pedestal. He just, leave me alone, leave me alone, leave me alone. It's not rational to run like this because he's not rational. Make sense? The way it ties in nicely is there's the idea that this is always a predestination paradox. In other words, this is how things always went, uh, as I like to put it. The way that ties in in the book is Crusher with the supplies she has with access to the ship and or not on the ship but on the on the on the the medical supplies she brought down cures his mental instability permanently fixes the imbalance in his chem in his chemistry in his brain chemistry literally leaving Zephram Cochran without his bipolar disorder from that point on I just like that because it would kind of tie in with why this flawed man was then able to overcome his blah 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 blah, blah. you get the idea so um so then there was the space sequence on the deflector dish. I don't actually have many thoughts to share about it other than this. I feel so bad for the people working on it. Those suits were hot and uncomfortable, and there were a lot of breathing problems. They had to do, like, a, only a few minutes of shooting at a time before they had to break in order to breathe. It was a very unpleasant affair for everyone. The set itself was huge. And yet they wanted it to actually look huger. So Frakes did a lot of really good camera work to make it look larger than it was. And they had issues with a lot of the props and otherwise and the smoke involved that basically was behaving as if it was on, you know, Earth, where gravity was, as opposed to in space, where gravity is less. Because the, the, the Enterprise E doesn't actually generate enough gravity field uh, due to its mass in order to pull things at it. So they had a lot of production issues with that. And I just feel like pointing out because... They still did a great job with that scene. Despite all the hassles, they still put out a good scene. Not the greatest scene in the movie, but it's also another aspect of the Borg's threat, the quiet threat. It's that idea, it, it's, it's hard to explain what this means to me, but the idea that, I mean, yes, you can be killed by a car running you over, or a meteor slamming into you, or a building falling on you. You can also die to a bad flu without the right medicine. You could die to a cut on your leg, which gets badly infected. You can die to the most mundane, simple things. And the idea of, the, in this massive pitched battle where they've defeated a cube, and they've defeated a sphere, and they've fought the Borg on their own ship, and they've salvaged the thing on the thing, for them to just die on the deflector dish to one Borg drone who just grabs you and tosses you out into space, it adds that quiet touch of horror, knowing that this is one of the worst possible ways you could die, and that there's almost nothing you can do about it because you are so powerless into, those, into that environment. So a wonderfully horrifying scene. Uh, so, Krieg and Spiner really do have amazing chemistry. The two sell their scenes together. And we enter the next stage of temptation for Data. 
I have never personally believed, and I've talked about this before in my stream, actually, I've never believed there was really a sexual connotation to her seduction of him. I use the word seduction, but seduction does not necessarily mean sexual. She is seducing data, first with information, and then with sensation, and following that with the idea of, of continuing to evolve, which has always been data's biggest goal. She builds up to that final temptation. I will offer you what you have always wanted. It's almost a classic Mephistopheles-style uh, deal with the devil, you know? She tempts him with what he has always wanted on all, on all, on all the, the points, you know, knowledge, sensation, and then uh, further discovery of his self, evolution into a new being. I also mention this because the way Data portrays it, the way Spiner portrays it is brilliant. Imagine, you remember how much he reacted to a breath of air across his new skin. That sensation was almost overwhelming to him. Then he is cut, specifically and precisely along that skin, and he is paralyzed by pain. Now that kind of a cut, some people nowadays wouldn't even notice that. I myself get cuts like that all the time. I had one on my head recently. In fact, I've got the scar up here. I don't know if you can see that right there. Um, that I didn't even notice, because we're used to that. We've had cuts like that ever since we were two, right? Data's never felt pain in his life. So, again, any sensation at that point is going to be magnified so much. It's like what happened back in Generations. Remember that? Remember that scene where he drinks it and he's like, oh, and this is the first time I'm feeling. I hate this drink. So just the fact that he hates it. But in this case, it's pain. One of the most interesting of sensations and therefore it makes perfect sense is what I'm saying to have it completely paralyze him but then have him to realize that he wants to experience more of it maybe not necessarily pain but sensation in general the way she says it is beautiful don't be tempted by flesh I also like one little touch uh, if I might say about uh, the deflector thing they have to punch in this thing and then move out this lock and manually move it, right? This is a small touch, but it's brilliant and it works perfectly. Worf does it, pulls out the maglock, pushes it in. Remember, Worf, Klingon, strong. Picard and Hawk do it and they're like, <sighs> struggling! Hawk actually fails and ends up getting Borgified as a result. Goodbye, Richard. Uh, Picard, <sighs> you know, he really struggles with it. I like that little touch. It was just a nice, subtle touch and really showed attention to detail. So good job, Frakes, uh, on that little point. So let's talk about Picard's nemesis. This movie is often called the TNG's Wrath of Khan, and that's because it is. It's not just the quality of the film. It's not just the fact that it's a bit of an ensemble cast. It's not just the fact that it has deep literary significance and thematic power going through the, through the work. It's not just the symbology. It's the fact that it is all about the main character, Kirk Picard, versus the one being that they truly felt was their nemesis, Khan and the Borg. Remember all those points I mentioned earlier. Picard lost the Stargazer, was court-martialed over the loss of the Stargazer, despite the fact that he invented a brand new tactic on the fly to help save it. Despite the fact that he took command in a crisis situation, despite all that he'd done, it wasn't quite good enough. Picard has always been a man who pushes himself, who really strives to be as much as he can, to be, I hate to say this, the Batman element, a.k.a. a normal person, 
but someone who uses all that he has in his normalcy to their furthest extent, the furthest end of the bell curve kind of a concept, right? Remember what happened at the beginning of this movie. The best ship in the fleet, the single most useful ship, most equipped and ready to fight the Borg, is sidelined because of Picard. Remember what happened in The Emissary in Deep Space Nine. Benjamin Sisko, an intelligent man, driven by his emotions admittedly, but an intelligent, well-reasoned individual, could not stand the sight of Picard. Remember that? This is, this is how the Borg are truly Picard's nemesis, because they beat him. The one time after all that Picard has faced, he has faced down the Q, he has faced down the Romulans, he has fought with the Cardassians, he has stood up to the Klingons and helped found Federa uh, the, the Federation Klingon uh, alliance made even closer. He has done so much with so much. But on his record, all anyone can ever see is that one blotch. The best ship in the fleet sidelined because Picard was its captain. Because he wasn't good enough for Starfleet. Because they couldn't see past that one time they beat him. Remember that? <laughs> Remember he has to kill his own crew out of mercy. The very concept of murder is something that's generally considered horrible in Star Trek. We, we've all established this, you know, idealistic future, etc. The idea of killing a soldier, well, that's one thing. An enemy in a combat, eh, still something we don't like to do, but something we can at least accept. But having to murder one of your own crew as a mercy. We in, in real life are kind of dulled to that idea because the concept of zombie fiction or the virus or whatever is kind of common in fiction. So the idea of killing someone as a mercy is almost mundane. Try to picture it from Picard's perspective, having to kill his crewman because he failed him. Try to picture what happened on the holodeck. As soon as those enemy soldiers got close enough and he realized who he was looking at, Ensign Lynch even gives him a name. He realized that's why he got so angry. That's why he got so furious. That's why he lost all self-control, all his discipline, all his self-restraint. Everything that has defined Picard went right out the window, and he was just an animalistic rage in that moment because he was being faced with his greatest loss. That's the thing the Borg keep doing to Picard. They keep beating him. Every time Picard fights the Borg, he loses. Every single time. The idea to, of Picard losing another ship has got to be unthinkable at this point in time. He already lost the Stargazer and the Enterprise D. The Stargazer wasn't really his fault. The Enterprise D was definitely not his fault. If, if only he had been there. If only Picard had been there to help save that ship, maybe he could have salvaged the Enterprise. But he wasn't there. And he lost that ship, too. The idea of losing his brand new ship only a year out of space dock. That's horrible. But losing it to the Borg? No. No, absolutely not. There's no way Picard could ever accept that. This is how Picard shows his great human flaws. Kirk had his own flaws, his arrogance, his pride. Picard's flaws are similar in their own way. Because Picard allows the Borg to change him. To awaken parts of him that he is ashamed of. 
to do things he is ashamed of in order to fight this enemy. One of the things I always find fascinating, though, is that from Picard's perspective, it's not about revenge. From Picard's perspective, all he's focusing on, all his mentality, all his discipline, all his mind is focused on one thing. I will not lose again. This time I will defeat this enemy. This time I will be victorious and I will never again have to, in his own words, fall back. The line must be drawn here. And yet, in as he lets his emotions run underneath his current, the current of his words, and oh, by the way, wonderful props to Patrick Stewart for this scene. There's a reason this scene is so famous. As he lets the emotion start under there, he says something that catches himself by surprise. I will make them pay for what they have done. And that line is interesting because if you pay attention to the progression of his speech, the rest of it is all about not losing to the Borg, not surrendering to the Borg, not giving up to the Borg. And then he utters that line and then he stops. And he walks over to the window in quiet shock. Lily is not the one who reaches Picard in the end. It is Picard who reaches Picard in the end. When he realizes how much his burning lust for revenge has actually changed him. A wound that never healed all the way back in Q Who. Not best of both worlds. No, no, no. Because remember, that's not the first time Picard lost to the Borg. He lost in Q Who. Remember that? That wound has never fixed, has never healed. It's just scabbed over. And as he's faced there with someone who has the human perspective to call him out on his actions, whereas his loyal crew will not, he, that scab is finally torn away, and all of that wound bleeds afresh. And we finally see that this is not truly Picard. And that's the thing that catches me about this wonderful moment. Because Picard is just human. He's not some revenge-obsessed idiot. He's a man. Just like Cochrane. You see the connection there? And it's a beautiful similarity. It's a beautiful sim symbiotic... A symbolic presentation of what this entire movie is about. The human spirit aspiring and conquering and ideal idealism winning out in the end. And that's actually exactly what happens. That's why Picard reaches Picard. Because when he realizes his own pain, when he actually is put face to face with his own words of hatred and venom, that's what stops him. Not Lily. And that's what makes him think that he's gone too far. And for the first time in his life, he does something that he hasn't done, that, that was talked about all throughout generations. He faces his pain. He faces his loss. And he tries to move on from it. And from this point on, Picard's entire demeanor is totally different. Because now, for the first time, a weight he didn't even realize was there was gone. Because that wound was always hiding underneath another wound. He, you know, of course the Borg hurt him, but he never realized his need for vengeance against them. That was lurking under the surface. And once he finally faces that and accepts that about himself, he's able to let it go. God, I love this movie. So, now to immediately nitpick, why does Worf have a self-destruct code for the Enterprise-E? Remember, he's on DS9 at this point in time, as a regular. He was the commander of the Defiant. 
a small little anecdote. Some people ask how the Define is even here, given DS9 is actually going on at the time. Uh, they actually worked through this out. Again, DS9, Continuity Hounds, etc. Uh, Cisco is in the Badlands with... Uh, uh, I can't think of his name. The the traitor. Spoiler alert. I'm not even going to say his name, but... Um, he... Uh, while this is happening. So it, all the attention in DS9 is actually over here and not on the station where they might be hearing about, I don't know, the Borg invasion of Earth. Um, moving on. I like Cochrane's gesture of playing the music while the ship takes off. This is almost assuredly me reading too much into this and also partially a line that was cut, which is a present in the book, where Cochrane, and I'm just going to try and quote the book here, lets go of 20 years of rage and cynicism and pain and misery and bitterness and hatred all in one wonderful yell of optimism. And he just goes, Wah! and he, he's just yelling in sheer joy as the phoenix takes flight. It's a wonderful scene. The music is, in my opinion, the best representation of that. For those of you who don't know, music is something intimately important to me. It's one of the most important things that exists to me that doesn't involve individual people. And so if I was about to do something monumentally important in my life, you better bet I would have my music playing for that scene. So that's, that's why I bring up the music thing. Uh, I also like the, the warp nacelles on the Phoenix. It's a nice touch. It's also a nice touch that it's got the old, uh, the old original series style to it, as far as its aesthetic and, and the way the nacelles work. It's also a little nitpick point, uh, in a good way, that there's actually a reason for the, the dual nacelle configuration for the warp field to be optimally designed and blah, blah, blah. I don't want to bore you guys with that. Suffice it to say, there's actually an in-lore reason for doing that kind of a warp field. It's one of the reasons why the Klingon ships have always been worse in terms of warp drive, because they don't use that design for the most part, but I digress. So then Picard does something awesome. He goes after Data alone. No bluster, no posturing, no going down with weapons or anything like that, because he knows doing so is pointless. If he tries to fight his way in, he will lose. And so he goes with the only thing he feels he can actually combat the Borg with at this point. His mind. And he's right. If he went in there guns blazing, pfft. He would just be captured and then dragged in, right? No point in wasting the time. But I like it because for the first time ever, Borg goes back to face the Borg not to try and beat them. He goes there for the right reasons this time. He goes there to save his crew, to save Data. It's worth noting this is the first time that the Picard actually defeats the Borg keep that in mind amazing build up to this double reveal I mentioned earlier Braga's really good at this type of writing first of all this is my present interpretation of the Borg's perspective and mindset and I've heard several others so feel free to disagree with me this is the queen's desire laid bare the queen wanted to assimilate earth in order to assimilate the federation and the alpha quadrant and all that fun stuff okay sure that satisfies the collective's desires. But what about the queen's desires? She offered Picard something that from her warped perspective, from the twisted ideals of the Borg, is the single most valuable thing that exists. Your individual free will. You are allowed to be in the collective and yet still be you. To the Borg, I cannot think of anything that would be more valuable. So she honored 
Picard with the idea of being this individual, this one unique person alongside herself. And Picard resisted. This is what the Queen really wants. Her revenge against Picard, ironically, is all that's been driving all the events of this thing. All those points I've been asking you to remember about the Borg, why they stopped, why they had this backup plan, why not destroy the, the shantytown. All of these things lead to this moment. It's There's some niches, nits in it, and it's not a perfect, flawless construction. But I believe the thematic significance was intended for this purpose. In other words, she was deliberately hampering her own efforts to win so she could have this moment. Because winning? Winning's easy. The queen wasn't interested in winning. The collective was. But the queen could allow the collective to win while still accomplishing what she wanted. What she wanted is much harder. She had to engineer a situation in which she had one of Picard's loyal crewmen, Data, and then she had to successfully tempt that crewman into truly joining her, or at least she felt he did, and then she would then hold that crewman hostage for Picard to come down and do the one thing the Queen wants. Remember, Picard pissed her off so much because he resisted, he denied, he refused her. She wanted Picard to submit. Not to simply be assimilated, but to truly accept and lower himself to her, offer himself to her. Again, not sexual. I already mentioned this. This is the greatest thing that could be offered anyone in the Borg's eyes. She wanted that equal. This, of course, then ties in with the, the first reveal. Or the second reveal, I should say. She has finally had him, Picard, on his knee, figuratively, to her. And then she does the most perfect thing in her mind. She denies him. She shows him her scorn and her vengeance by doing the exact same thing to him that he did to her. Why else would he, she try to stick around and not just uh, win? Again, at any point in time here, it, ignoring the data situation, from her perspective, she has data. Now, we know she doesn't, but from her perspective, why bother with this whole charade unless she wanted to crush Picard's spirit? She could have had him assimilated in a second. Done. Assimilated. She could have taken over the rest of the ship and then blown away the, the Phoenix at any time, and then just, or even let the Phoenix show up here and then take over the Vulcan ship. I mean, there's options, right? But no, no, that wasn't good enough. She wanted Picard there, conscious and aware, and watching as she destroyed the Phoenix. Literally just as a symbolic gesture, literally just to get to him, to hurt him as he hurt her. I love that. Some people have also asked me why does Data take so long to finally hit the tubes. I've always believed that was a calculation on his part. Yes, he could have just ran over the tubes and hit them, but that's not a guarantee. And remember, the Queen has already demonstrated the ability to generate force fields more or less at will. No. Data needs a situation where she is distracted. So Data offers her exactly what she wants. He fires the torpedoes on a bad trajectory. And he, the, watch the Queen's voice. She is enraptured. She is just in joy, watching this wonderful revenge finally, satisfyingly come to, to fruition. And so she's not paying any attention to what's going on. 
and Data in the background. I love this because Data's literally out of focus in the camera. Wonderful work by Jonathan Frakes. He's literally out of focus in the background, moving over to the tanks because that's exactly what the Queen's seeing right now, isn't it? You know, et cetera, et cetera. And then he smashes the tanks and then wonderful thing. And of course, one of the best lines uh, in the film, resistance is futile. <laughs> I find something interesting in the irony that Data defeated the Queen, but Picard killed her. It's a twofold irony. Both of these men were tempted by her. Both of them resisted her in the end. Both of them decided to aspire to something greater than what the Borg did. And yet the Borg themselves are also in a really twisted and warped sense, an aspect of that same idealism, the aspiration to be more than we are, to evolve, grow, learn, etc. It's one of the quietly horrifying things about this film, but I'm getting off track. Let's get back to the point that Picard, a human, aka an organic, and Data, a synthetic, combine their abilities to defeat the Queen of the Borg. I don't have much else to say. Uh, I have nothing to add about the ending of, of, of this movie. I love this movie. Uh, in my mind, this is the one TNG movie I truly, really think is a great movie in the top 100, so to speak. And it was a treat to rewatch it. Next is Insurrection. See you next time, guys.